The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Going to begin reading in First Peter two twenty one. Last week we concentrated mostly on twenty one through twenty three, but I told you that that was only one aspect of what was being praised about Christ. And really, the, this next aspect that is in verses twenty four and twenty five is soaring in its greatness, even above the tremendous truth we learned last time. So listen to God's word as I read 1 Peter 2, beginning at 21 through the end of the chapter, and our focus is on the last two verses today. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." This is God's holy word. These last two verses of 1 Peter 2 are very precious words. You're looking for a memory verse to learn that would guide you in a very basic statement of the basic truth of Christianity in just two sentences. You would do well to memorize verse 24. For it is a great summary of of the gospel concept of the atonement of Jesus Christ dying in our place as the substitute sin-bearer for all time. Now, there are occasions when substitutes are not expected to do something as well as the person they're standing in for. In fact, sometimes the word substitute causes you to think, oh, well, I'll get second best today because this person is just a substitute. I think back to 10th grade, an experience I was part of only as a member of a class. Our 10th grade English teacher, for some reason, had fairly frequent illness in the first semester of the year. And those with wise authority who called in substitutes I think messed up pretty badly in the substitute they kept sending to us time after time. I don't say this to malign the woman. I actually felt great pity for her. She was a a woman of rather short stature, middle-aged, but I honestly felt in my 15-year-old mind that something was wrong that 
why she wasn't a regular teacher seemed evident to me. Because she couldn't control our class. And there were three young men who knew that very well. And they took the measure of her the first time or two that we had her and decided she's an easy mark. So for amusing shenanigans throughout that semester when this substitute would be present, one of these three guys, they sort of played it like the Three Stooges, and one of them would start something, drop a book or do something, and then the others would kind of chime in with a rehearsed act and something that would annoy and disrupt the class that the teacher ought to be able to take control of. Our regular teacher, believe me, would have had no trouble at all. But she didn't know how to handle it. And every time she would end up red in the face, very angry, shouting, you boys go to the principal right now. And then that was their signal to sit in their desks with their hands piously folded and not to move and just smile. And she kept yelling, you go to the principal right now. They didn't move. They won. They pulled this woman's chain. They could control her. And she showed her inability as a substitute to control that class. I, by the way, I was not one of the three young men, just, <laughs> just in case you think. They weren't even my friends as far as that went. We need to thank God this morning that Jesus Christ, God's Son, was a substitute who not only knew how to perform his assigned task with absolute effectiveness, he was, in fact, the only person in heaven or on earth, who could do what he did as the grand substitute, capital G, capital S, when he went to the cross and died in our place, taking the weight of our sin. You see, last time we dealt with a text that is just a magnificent text to me, and I tried to emphasize that last time, this shining example of Jesus accepting unjust suffering, being reviled, being spat upon, being beaten, and all the things that happened. And he just silently took it and entrusted himself to God who judges justly. It seems to me there that you you cannot raise any higher example. In fact, we're told this is our example. We are to follow in his steps, not in some generalized way, but in this particular way of submitting to unjust suffering as he did. Now, as I studied this text, I was mindful that there would be many people whose Christianity ends with verse 23 because their idea is Jesus is the great example, the great teacher, the great moral exemplar. Nobody comes close to setting up a a great way to behave. Just behave the way Jesus did. And that's their religion. I will try to behave as much as I can to be like Jesus. But you see, if you stop at verse 23, you don't have Christianity. That's pretty disastrous, actually. Because unless you have verse 24, you haven't seen Jesus in relation fully to the cross, to the active thing that he did to become a Savior. Not just to give us a moral example and say, try to do this. Try hard. I know I'm morally higher than you, but If you try real hard, maybe you can please God in the same way I did. No, you have to read verse 24. What he did 
to become our Savior as our substitute, going to that tree, as it's called here, which we know is the cross, in order to offer the atonement once for all for those who put trust in him. He's more than just a great example. And so I see verses 24 and 25 rightly ending this chapter because they portray the very heart of the cross. Christ stood in our place and substituted who he was, his righteousness, in the place of our unrighteousness. And the Holy Spirit gave Peter to stress this. He bore, he carried our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sins and live unto righteousness. That, ladies and gentlemen, is Christianity in one sentence. Christ in our place, that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. The hymn writer Philip Bliss wrote almost 150 years ago a great hymn that we'll sing later in the season as we move closer to Easter time. The hymn has one verse that says, Bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior! That's what we want to look at today, this simple but profound doctrine of Christ as the incomparable substitute sin-bearer. And so first of all, from verse 24, I say to you this, every believer's sin is carried off by this magnificent substitute. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He carried the load of his people's sin, not just for one of us, but for all of us. I love the story of Samson. Maybe I like Samson best of of all the biblical judges because he's so flawed. God used him despite a rather gross way in which Samson was always getting carried away with his own ego, thought he could do it without God, getting into terrible messes which the power of God allowed him to come out of. And one occasion you might remember, in the book of Judges, Samson was surrounded by his enemies in the city of Gaza. He'd gone there to be with a woman. He was in her house. The enemies knew where he was. They locked the city and said, we'll finally capture this guy. We'll get him in the morning. If we try it at night, he might get away in the dark. So we'll wait till morning. The city gates are locked. He cannot get out. We'll have him tomorrow morning. And you may know what Samson did. He got up in the middle of the night, went to the city gate. I can't picture what this gate looked like, but this man whose strength was not simply from lifting weights in a gym, it was strength from God, put his back against that gate and grasped its posts and pulled them out of the ground and carried the gates away to a hill where in the morning the enemies found Samson gone, the gate a hole in the wall, and there somewhere on a distant hill was what was left of their gate. That to me is what Jesus did. A Samson-like action when Jesus bent himself under the colossal historic tonnage of human sin and bore it away 
It's so important that you see this concept of substitution on our behalf. Let me just tell you a a few other passages of Scripture where it can be found. Our hymn that we sang in the middle there just before the message carried overtones not only of 1 Peter 2, but also of Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, we have that familiar, wonderful prediction from many hundreds of years before Christ was born. He was wounded. Now, I want you to listen to the little connective words. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Do you hear it? All those connective words? What was ours becoming his? What was his becoming ours? The doctrine of substitution is taught there very strongly. Then you have the example of it from the temple life of the Old Testament. The book of Leviticus, not a place where many of you probably read too often. And you say, well, I don't need to read Leviticus because a lot of it is about the ceremonial law and sacrifices and all of that, and I know that's been fulfilled, so I don't need that today. But you sure go back there and find some things that were so wonderfully fulfilled in Christ. Leviticus 16 tells of the ritual of the Day of Atonement when Aaron, the priest, would lay his hands. Here's what it says. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over the goat all the wickedness and rebellion of the children of Israel and tell all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send the goat away into the desert and it will carry their sins. To a solitary place. What a beautiful picture. Isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ did? Carrying our sins away. If you come into the New Testament, you hear Jesus himself say it. Matthew 20, the Son of Man did not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. There it is again. His life substituted for ours. Paul in Galatians 3 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then a great passage, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. You know, be sin, that's five letters. Is there any greater mystery in all the universe than in those five letters? Christ was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He didn't sin. He didn't have sin of his own. But he took ours. He bore ours. He bore our sin. That's Christian salvation. Jesus carried to his cross and on that cross that which would have destroyed us if we had to carry it ourselves. I for some reason, can always seem to remember tragic accidents that occur. And I remember one that took place, and I I really can't remember when. It it had to be, in my mind, a decade or maybe 12 or more years ago. Some of you may remember this. 
a bridge was being reconstructed. I believe it was down in the vicinity of Harrisburg somewhere. And you know how these highway bridges have these tremendous beams that that span across, and four or five of them carry the deck, uh, the roadway for many cars and trucks to go across. Well, this bridge was being reconstructed, but because of the nature of things, somehow they had to also allow traffic to go through in in a controlled lane with flagmen and everything. And just exactly how this happened, I don't know. But what I remember is a young lady was driving her car. I think she was going to work in the morning. And somehow she was waved through underneath this bridge, and somehow she went in just as a large beam was dislodged and fell upon her car and killed her instantly. One of these enormous, great big beams killed her. And I remember that to think, imagine that. No warning. I'm sure she never knew what happened. I'm sure she didn't suffer because tons and tons of steel fell upon her head. But that is not an exaggeration of what the Bible says will happen to the massive weight of sinful consequence of anyone who does not have Christ as substitute to carry that load away. The weight and mass of your sin, yours alone, would crush you. And if you think you can carry it, you will find out quite the opposite. We studied in our Sunday school class on final things, the return of Christ and all the events that accompany it. We talked about hell. I've just talked about hell for a whole hour. Not my favorite thing to do. But we talked about Verses like 2 Thessalonians 1.9, which says that if we do not have removed from us that debt, that burden of guilt and sin before God, we will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. I cannot soften, I dare not soften, the dozens of such texts that the Scripture talks about. But if there's one who can carry that for us, who can intercede with that crushing load, that it would not fall on our heads and smash us, then that Holy One is someone to whom we must flee. There's a wonderful Bible word that liberal theologians have desperately tried to get out of the Bible. It's only in a few certain passages. The word is to propitiate. It's not a word we use in common everyday speech, but it's a word that means to intercept or receive the wrath of God on behalf of someone else. That's what we believe Jesus did. He intercepted the wrath of his Father for sin. And people want to say, oh, don't be ridiculous. I don't believe in a God of wrath. My God's only a God of love. Well, too bad you're only worshiping half of God. God has wrath for sin. Sin needs to be atoned for. The Bible says that Jesus was the propitiation of our sins. And people want to take that word out because it implies God has wrath. Well, if you don't believe that Jesus intercepted the wrath of God, then you must have another explanation for what was going on when he hung upon the cross on that Friday and all alone, naked, covered with blood and grime and 
the stripes of the whip all over him. I don't know whether he muttered it or yelled it, but we know he said, My God, why have you forsaken me? That's when Jesus bore the whole load, your whole load. And he did it as no other person could do it for you. So we conclude that the concept of substitution lies at the very heart of sin and salvation. Actually, the essence of spiritual sin and rebellion comes from man trying to substitute himself for God and saying, I can be my own God. While the essence of salvation is just the opposite, Christ substituting himself for sinful man and woman. Every believer's sin can be carried off by this magnificent substitute. But then the verse goes on, verse 24 declares, secondly, a believer's life is radically changed by the work of this substitute. Why? What is, what is the radical change? That we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Jesus made an end to the absolute tyranny of sin over a Christian. Now, we're not saying, of course, that you can't sin. You know you can. Every Christian present, I would hope, has the realism to say, I've sinned, probably this morning, certainly yesterday, maybe many, many times. We can sin. We can even be controlled by sin if we allow it. But that's the important thing to notice here. Sin's tyranny is actually broken for the Christian. You live, if you say you live in a jailhouse of sin, I have to tell you the door's unlocked. And you have the ability to pray before the Holy Spirit and repent and say, Oh, Lord God, forgive me and let me walk out of this cell and be changed because you died so I could do that. I was trying to think of an example of something very frightening and dangerous that could be rendered not dangerous at all. I tried it out on my wife. She wasn't too impressed. I tried it out on the first congregation. I don't think they were impressed, but here it is anyway. I thought of a great white shark, or any shark for that matter. Here you are at Ocean City, swimming away, having a good time. Somebody says, dorsal fin, shark! And everybody quickly runs for the beach. Now suppose you're the one person who knows something about that shark that everybody else doesn't know. You know that that shark has had all its teeth removed and no dentures, okay? What, what is it that's terrifying about a shark? It's teeth, Right? Although, let me tell you, 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 this congregation always has somebody. Because somebody came up and said, well, even if he didn't have teeth, sharks have such a tremendous bite power that he could gnaw you to death. Well, all right, you spoiled my illustration. But (laughs) here we've got this shark. Suppose I know that he has zero teeth. And somebody said, okay, Rogers, I defy you to stand off with that shark. Stay in waist-deep water and let him swim right up to you. And I'll give you $1,000 if you do it. You know, I'm usually hard up enough for $1,000 that I would do that. And I might pet him on, an, on the nose. Could he knock me down? Yes. Could he perhaps whiplash his tail and give me a good smack and break a few ribs? Perhaps. But he couldn't kill me because he has no teeth. 
And in a real sense, that's what sin is to a Christian. A great white shark with no teeth. Does it harm us? Yes. Chiefly when we allow it to. Must it harm us? No. No. Because Christ has broken its chain. And as we read here, we can die to sin and live to righteousness. We are not helpless inmates on death row. The jail door is unlocked. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 6, 6 2, he says, We died to sin. How then shall we live in it any longer? And he goes on a few verses later, Romans 6 5, and says, If we've been united with Christ in his death, we certainly will be united in his resurrection. Christianity isn't just fire insurance to protect you from going to hell, it is a purchase out of the bondage to sin into a new existence, an existence where you can claim the power of God. Yes, you'll fall down. Yes, it'll be imperfect. But you have a new power and a new life at work within you. Are you living that life? Are you living a life that was crucified with Christ and risen with Christ so that you're separated from the passions and powers that rule so many people in this world? You actually are legally dead to any punishment for your sin because of Christ, and you are dead, too, from the dominion of sin over your heart and your mind and your will. Well, thirdly today, hear the positive ending here. First Peter two twenty four and 25 says to a believer who bows before Jesus as Lord, by his wounds you are healed. This isn't some foolish teaching that Christians never need to get sick. The healing it's speaking of, we think, is spiritual healing, the healing of what's wrong with us before God. And we know that because of what it says here. You were like sheep going astray, but you've been brought back by the shepherd and overseer of your soul. You've heard it many times before. Why does the Bible liken us to sheep? It'd be nice if it likened us to dogs or horses, more intelligent animals who, if they wander, well, you read miraculous stories of some dog that his family leaves it behind on vacation or something, and the dog travels 400 miles to their home. Sheep can't do that. Sheep just start wandering and keep on wandering. But it says here, by his wounds we've been healed. We've been brought back by a shepherd who knows our tendency to wander to a place of healing at the feet of our Father. Who, and our, uh, Christ not only then is the one who died for my penalty, but who ministers to my dreaded sin disease. And here again, it's substitution. Do you remember how Jesus remarkably healed lepers most of the time? There are several instances of him healing a leper. In those times, in the first century, it was thought that leprosy was catching. You didn't want to, I believe that's since been debunked, but in those days, the leper had to go down the street shouting, unclean, unclean, don't touch me. I'm coming, get out of the way. When Jesus healed a leper, what did he do? Did he stay on his side of the street and shout across, okay, Mr. Leper, be healed by the power of God? He could have done that. He had power to heal from a distance, we know, because he did it. But what did he usually do with lepers? He went over and put his hands all over them. 
He put his hands on their head or their shoulder, and by the way, that could have been perhaps the first time that individual had been touched compassionately by any other human being for a long time. And he said, be clean. And the Scripture implies that the Son of God, by his power, took that awful illness into himself because we know he was ceremonially unclean in the eyes of the Jewish synagogue by doing that. He took our illness into himself, another act of substitution. Jesus became a leper to save lepers. To you who are Christians today, I trust I'm talking to the majority of my audience. Be sure that you know that the Father did not lay your sin, the load of it, on Jesus just so he could give it back and you could struggle with carrying it the next day. As a Christian, do not commit the folly of thinking you must still carry the debt of your own wrongdoings and mistakes and guilt and shame. Someone has taken it. It's not yours to carry anymore. But to you who have not called Jesus your Lord, can I urge you to just try to say, Lord God, I hear this thing the preacher's talking about called substitution. Never got that idea before. Would you put my shame, my guilt, all the negative junk that's in my life on the shoulders of Jesus and let me know that it's been carried away? Can I appeal to you to do that? It's not about an emotional experience. It's about the reality of a substitute who will act for you and who will take it away, and it will be gone. A missionary visited in Tokyo, Japan in the 1920s. He was coming into the country for the first time, He presented his passport to customs officials. He was from America. And the document was examined courteously, and the missionary was asked, Who stands for you? He didn't know what that meant. He said, Excuse me? What do you mean? Who stands for you? He was told that in the city of Tokyo, there was an ordinance that no foreigner could reside there for longer than just a few days' short visit without having named a Japanese substitute, a Japanese citizen, who would be your surrogate. If you committed a crime in Tokyo, you would probably be asked to leave the city and not come back, but you would not be prosecuted. They did not prosecute foreign citizens. They would prosecute your surrogate. And there were actually people who hired out to do this. Fairly good living could be made by letting total strangers pay you a small amount of money to be their surrogate. I've had folks visiting Japan saying there's still a remnant of this there today and that at least financially you might be asked, who's your guarantor? Who stands behind you financially? But imagine that. I would go to Tokyo. I might even kill someone. I might commit a capital crime requiring death, and they would let me go and hold for trial my surrogate. You say, that sounds unbelievable. Well, it sounds unbelievable when I hear that that's what Jesus Christ did. One historic person voluntarily took the position on behalf of millions to carry the load, the crushing 
load of sin and guilt. And he did it not to be paid for it, but he did it out of free grace. Do you know today, with absolute certainty, the answer to the question, who stands for you? Father, salvation is so simple that it is also profound. We would not have thought of this. We would not have devised this idea. The perfect son of the highest who committed no sin, descending to the lowest place of all. The people who are lepers, both in their bodies and their acts and their minds, and taking their leprosy, their guilt, their unforgivable acts, and bearing them all to the cross. I don't know what to say, my Father, except hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen.